You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual dimension of our events calendar. Tonight's event is being brought to you in conjunction with our friends at Naropa University and Night Boat Books, celebrating the publication of New Weathers, Poetics from the Naropa Archive, edited by Ann Waldman and Emma Gomez. Before we begin, as is customary, the beginning of each event, I'd like to remind everyone we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and offer our respect. So City Lights has had a long-standing and very familial relationship with Europa University and the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. So many of the poets and authors that have graced our halls, been published by us, and had a long-standing relationship with City Lights have connections to Naropa. So tonight's event is auspicious on many counts. The Naropa Project is one that we've supported and felt a very strong kinship to since its inception. So New Weathers is a wonderful anthology that brings together lectures transcribed from the audio archives of Naropa University's summer writing program. And it represents a kind of continuing lineage of experimental literary movement in this country. We're honored to have the book's editors with us tonight. We have Ann Waldman and Emma Gomez. Ann is no stranger to City Lights. We've published her work and featured her in our events program many times. So this is really a bit of a homecoming. Anne's work as a poet, performer, educator, literary curator, and cultural activist needs little introduction. Emma Gomez will be joining Anne. She is the Catalan American poet, an essayist, an editor, and researcher. She's the co-founder of Manifold Press. Her writing has been published in the Denver Quarterly, the Brooklyn Rail, amongst other publications. So the two of them are going to be joined by a fantastic group of poets, educators, and activists. Uh, we are delighted to have Alan Gilbert, Cedar Sego, who we've published, and Eleni Siclianos, who we've also published. Um, they're going to be with us here tonight celebrating this wonderful new anthology. So before we start, I do want to remind everyone, we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of New Weathers. I'd also like to take this moment to praise Nightboat Books and all the gang over there for their exquisite taste in poetry and fiction. They're one of the great independent literary institutions in this country, and we're happy to have them as co-host tonight. Please join me now in welcoming Ann Waldman, Emma Gomez, Alan Gilbert, Cedar Sego, and Eleni Siclianos into the house. A delight and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Peter. Such an honor to be there with you and all the friends out there, seeing some Naropa folk. A shout out to Jeffrey Petherbridge. This all couldn't have happened without you too. And uh, to any students, I just haven't seen the whole list, but uh, so happy to have you aboard. And this has been an incredible labor of love. Uh, started gestating about 10 years ago. Uh, we still have so much more material. We were uh, bound by the binding of a something that has to be a book. Uh, very grateful to Nightboat for help, their help in, in shaping it, helping making you know these decisions. There's more to come always as we continue to record our summers, uh, often transcribe them, 
Uh, they're available for teaching and, and so on. So very happy that this feels like an amazing um, compendium. So important we did it, worked on it during this time. It really gave me a incredible spirit, actually, thinking about future memory and about how the, the threads of uh, oral transmission can really change your life, as it did mine, hearing, you know, tapes of Antonin Artaud and Mayakovsky and Stein and others and all the contemporary folk that are part of the so-called outrider time and lineage. So amazing. And to be working intergenerationally with Emma Gomez, uh, also a uh, you know, a real neuropoid. So we're going to start by reading some brief passages from our introduction, which is called Archival Practice in the Anthropocene, and give a little bit of a taste of the, you know, grounding for this book. But we were really in a kind of pod over the, the um, pandemic time, especially that first year. And uh, it was just an amazing, almost a spiritual practice to be working on this. And we're also really hoping to preserve and do the proper inventory to make this archive more and more available to the rest of the world. Archival practice in the Anthropocene. So Naropa University, the Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics are situated outside the frame of the conventional academias following this outrider lineage of American avant-garde literary practices. It is a place that cultivates non-normative thinking and encourages radical exploration and experimentation in the literary arts. Established in 1974, which was the crucial first summer when I was invited out by the Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa, along with Allen Ginsberg and Diane De Prima to come to this place in the, uh, on the continent, you know, the spine of the whole continent clear down to uh, the southern realms and into Canada with its negative ions and invited to get something going. We had no idea. I was, you know, in New York working with the poetry project for a number of years. And uh, this was seemed like an amazing way to extend some of this vision of uh, experimental practices. And we had, there's a famous meeting where we spoke about the 100-year project, which included John Cage, Alan, Diane, um, Jackson McClough, myself and others. And from that, you know, it was a very, still very potent and vivid in my mind. And it all kind of began with that idea to commit to this amazing place. So for three to four weeks every summer, the Kerouac School hosts poets and scholars from all over the world in Colorado to participate in intensive program of poetics. The texts collected here are primarily lectures and essays that were presented during sessions of the summer writing program. And they go back to some of the earlier years, as uh, one can see. I don't think we have time to go through the whole contents, but in assembling, assembling this collection, we spent hours calling the archive, searching for material. Emma. The Naropa Audio Archive spans back to its initial founding, so in 1974, when the lectures were given in large canvas tents, and it still continues to amass new experimental thinking with audio added every summer, making it maybe one of the most important um, archives of experimental American poetry. The archive is a memory device, an inventory, a record. An archive is a place where the contemporary confronts the past. It offers the potential to disrupt systemic oppression, to question what has become heterogeneous, 
authority and social order, to engage with documents, to bear witness to injustice, and to begin to work in intermedial modes. In undertaking an examination of its gaps and failings, one can gesture towards what Eve Sedgwick calls a reparative reading of our subsumed epistemologies, a hermeneutic for a style of critique that seeks to repair the damage of prejudice and violence rather than perpetuating them further. In the pages that follow, we have brought together a range of poetics that reach out towards divergent frequencies, offering new ways of thinking around major aspects in our society in order to imagine alternate possibilities, trespassing protocols and authority. These texts evoke, invoke issues around gender and racially based injustice, the global climate crisis and our possible extinction and unconventional forms of thinking as possible strategies for resistance. So we compose the, the book in five different sections um, and they were the titles were taken from panel titles that were held throughout the years of the summer writing program. They represent some of the tentacles that weave through our poetic community, some of the conversations we're having, some of the topics we're facing with these new weathers. Um, the titles are Sanctuary and Apocalypse, Eco-Poetic Attentions, Communal Actions, Identity in the Capitalocene, and Against Atrocity. Atrocity can't obliterate our will or capacity to imagine the extraordinary conversations that we participate in fortify us in our complicity to continue to go against to go outward and onward this book is not solipsistic but rather an exchange that hopes to cultivate a generative spirit of curiosity investigation cross-cultural activism magpie scholarship around other species and ongoing conversation that touches upon various fields of engagement with language Mine is a very particularized journey. As Gary Snyder said, it is a journey of a thousand years. That's Ed Sanders. In the editing of the book, it was important for us to preserve the conversation, the interaction between the different pieces, I think kind of represent the sort of the importance of communal community and dialogue and the sense of ongoing conversation that is very much a part of the Naropa ethos. Um, so, for example, Fred Moten engages in conversation with the work of Laylee Long Soldier, Roger Reeves critically approaches the opacity of Aimé Césaire, and also Cedar Saigo, who you'll hear from today, um, his piece uh, talks about um, Diane de Prima and Audre Lorde and puts them into conversation. Um, some of the other conversations that happen throughout the anthology are Peter Warshaw's description of uh, light that make you want to commune with the natural world and save it from ecological disaster. Lisa Robertson calling us to collective action, as well as Thurston Moore invoking a sense of collective activism. Allen Ginsberg offering meditation as a technique to engage with our creative output. Lisa Jarnot um, offering a method of preparation for impending ecological crisis. And Alice Notley inviting us to consider dreams as instruments of reality. It is our hope that these serve as tools to protect us in the fight ahead. We just wanted to comment on the intergenerational uh, you know, quality of this collaboration together. And also that Naropa itself has that for since the beginning, people come from all kinds of places and ages and uh, backgrounds to join in the summer community. And that's been very, very important, I think, in the, you know, the vision for this book, as well as the the feeling that, you know, when you're when you're reading your these pieces, you realize they've been uh, so important to a, a community that still holds holds them in uh, this kind of 
memory and act and a generative place. So the conversation continues along. We've also, we could talk a little bit about how we work with the material, the transcriptions. Yeah, um, so most of these were from audio recordings that are in the, the Naropa archive. The audio recorder records words, but also preserves intonations, pauses, and gestures. When someone speaks, something more takes place that's not registered on the paper. It then transmutes as you catch the word and put it down. The transmission is first delivered orally and then through transcription takes on a new form, um, presents a new way of processing the information, becomes a new text you can study. And by study, we mean a practice that extends beyond the classroom, a practice of rereading and carrying our words with us. So some of the texts here have been edited and refined by the authors themselves. Um, and others we've had to condense while main, trying to maintain true to the piece's core. Some of the pieces have been given titles by the authors, while others are referenced just by the panel in which they were presented. Um, we put things in brackets for clarity. But I think, yeah, essentially the care and love of the editors, us who in many cases were present during these lectures and very much a part of this living body of poetic study served as an impotence for assembling this book. And I was going a lot on what Amiri had said shortly before he died. Uh, he said, don't let this stuff get buried. And I remember when Alan was close to his passing, uh, we talked about the archive in the hospital room. Uh, just, you know, I, I retook re my vow to uh, try to preserve and continue and um, find the next iterations. We don't know what they'll be. It could be a little chip in the head where you could get the whole archive up, up until the present. Uh, so that's very important. He was, you know, he was giving a talk, I think, that summer, Amiri on, on uh, Olson and O'Hara and all these members of his outrider generation and how uh, he was concerned that that stuff would get buried, you know, Ed Dorn and others. So we have at the end of our little state intro here, we hope this book will make you feel like you're not alone. Its aim is to weave an intergenerational connectivity that serves to unite us. You are not in an isolated bubble in which the only way to relate is through a conversation with a screen or an app. The texts here incorporate different communities, movements, backgrounds, and lineages, but they are all thinking toward how we can change the current frequencies, how we can help wake the world up to itself, which is the long, you know, long, many years slogan of the Kerouac School. We're here to help wake the world up to itself. So there's, uh, you know, there's so much. I mean, each piece is very different from the next, and yet you feel uh, we we arranged it in a way where we felt there was a a, a conversation that would go on between the uh, ideas and the forms and the genius and the consciousness of the uh, texts in here, and they're very vivid in me because having heard most of them when they were presented. It really is a, you know, makes me tremble. So very delighted to have our guests here. And I think, I hope there's a little bit of time. Oh, we're gonna read the Diane. Let's go ahead. Um, yeah, before we turn it over to our contributors, do you want me to read it? Sure. Okay, I'm gonna read a quote from Diane de Prima. It's from a, a poem called Buddhist New Year Song from Pieces of a Song. 
I saw you in green velvet, wide, full sleeves, seated in front of a fireplace, our house made somehow more gracious, and you said, there are stars in your hair. It was truth I brought down with me to this sullen and dingy place that we must make golden, make precious and mythical somehow. It is our nature and it is truth that we came here, I told you, from other planets. And then in our afterward, we had this wonderful quote from Lewis Warsh of Dark Side of Time. Also to say that as we were working on this book, so many people were uh, leaving this worldly realm and uh, they were very much in the conversation of, of the editing of this book. So this is Lewis Warsh. It's getting late in the day. We'll have caviar and champagne at the edge of the crater on the sea of dreams and look down to earth as if it were all one and the same and leave our footprints for those who follow. And I also want to say, uh, you know, a shout out to um, all the people who've been through the, the portals of the uh, ongoing experiment, which is the Jack Kerouac School. Um, thinking of Clark Coolidge, who I think is in the, the poetry room here through City Lights technology and um, many others. And we'll continue. I mean, we, we have much more material. And as I said, we've continued to record every summer. So it's very up to date, but just very, very grateful because it's a community of hundreds, if not of that, you know, over a thousand who keep have kept this going. Okay. And now we're, we're gonna turn it over to Alan Gilbert, one of our contributors who wrote his piece in this uh, anthology is called What's the Frequency? Trends in Contemporary Poetry. Alan Gilbert is the author of poetry collections Late in the Antenna Fields, The Treatment of Monuments and the Everyday Life of Design and the essay collection Another Future, Poetry and Art in a Postmodern Twilight. He is also an art writer who has contributed to catalog essays for Biennales and various group and solo shows. Alan was a student at the University of Colorado where he became a close friend of Naropa's and of Anne's. Um, and yeah, we're very grateful that he's here to help us celebrate this book. So Alan. Thank you, I'm grateful to be here. And thank you to the organizers, City Lights and Nightboat. Um, thank you to Anne and Emma for compiling this substantial body of work. And thank you all for being here for tonight. We have a nice crowd. It looks like a lot of people. Um, so we've been asked to read for about five minutes and I'm gonna split my five minutes between the first two pages of my um, uh, talk and the first two pages of a panel talk by um, uh, Harry Edwards. So my piece was delivered in the um, summer of 2010, uh, and it's called What's the Frequency? Trends in Contemporary Poetry. On the evening of October 4th, 1986, as CBS Evening News anchorman Dan Ratter was taking a walk along Park Avenue, he was attacked by two men. As the primary assailant punched and kicked Rather, he repeatedly asked, Kenneth, what is the frequency? The two men disappeared and were never apprehended, until a person named William Tager shot and killed an NBC employee while trying to gain access to the Today Show television studios in August of 1940, 1994. 
At that point, Rather identified him as the man who had assaulted him eight years earlier. The second man who Rather says didn't physically accost him and may not actually exist has never been identified or arrested. Tager targeted Rather and later the Today Show because he claimed that the media was watching him and broadcasting messages directly into his head. Although the consequences of his actions were deadly serious, it's difficult not to note that he seems like a character straight from a Philip K. Dick or William Burroughs novel, two authors very much attuned to the relationship between messages and control. Poetry, perhaps more than any other artistic form, has the ability to scramble the relationship between messages and control, to create static within it, and it partly does so by putting the body, the body of the poem, which is an extension of the body of the poet, between them. Maybe that's one reason why Burroughs liked to hang out with poets. For a brief time early in his writing life, Philip K. Dick was a roommate of San Francisco Renaissance poets Robert Duncan and Jack Spicer. Hmm. All art is, in certain ways, about the body, because dominant ideologies seek to both fix and mark the body, and the more othered the body, by ethnicity, class, gender, sexual orientation, war, geography, age, etc., more deeply inscribed, which isn't the same as legible, are the marks. Whiteness aims to be the invisibility of marks. If language, or more precisely discourse, is the tool of this inscription, then poetry is the writing of scars. My vocabulary did this to me, Spicer famously said on his alcoholic, ruined body deathbed. Spicer also famously compared the poet to a radio receiving messages from the Martians, an idea partly inspired by a scene from John Cocteau's film Orpheus, in which a poet transcribes coded messages from a car radio. This is Spicer's notion of poetry as dictation. In a Spicer poem entitled Sporting Life, found within his larger serial poem Thing Language, a title that evokes the poem as physical object and body, he writes, quote, the trouble with comparing a poet with a radio is that radios don't develop scar tissue. Uh, and these are the first two pages of um, uh, Carrie Edwards' um, panel contribution in the summer of 2001. Um, the panel was entitled Identity, Narrative, and Anti-Narrative. Uh, and Carrie Edwards is a groundbreaking uh, transgender writer and activist uh, who died too young uh, in 2006, and I wanted to read this partly in tribute to Carrie Edwards. I had a couple people ask me, why do we need to worry about words when people are starving? I went home early last night because I was exhausted and depleted and starting to get cold, and I had a news bulletin. I mean, it came over the wires. I didn't make this up. This is real. In Cortez County yesterday, they found a teenager bludgeoned to death who was thought to be a homosexual because this individual had plucked their eyebrows, had makeup on, and had a purse. And this is no joke. They really just found this person totally brutalized out in the woods. And the other things about words is why, when we hear about other people being murdered, do we have to hear about their clothes or their makeup? Why does this happen to anyone who's queer? Oh, they were wearing this or they wore this. So I was really taken back by how easy it is to sort of make someone look like a target. And it also... It's also a way to tell all queers, if you dress like this, this is going to happen to you. So I have a little thing I want to read, but I just wanted to, since we stayed here and we didn't get to hear the news, I wanted to pass that on. 
I was thinking narrative. Isn't that the sort of thing that forms identity? Maybe I was thinking of another narrative. Whatever the case, I see narrative as something that needs to be troubled, discarded, and sent through the shredder. I personally attempt to find the edge of narrative where it starts to disintegrate into a Dadaist manifesto and end up negating itself. Well, that's not right. I attempt to find the edge where the narrative turns into an endless cycle of rejecting, appropriating, and expelling, digressing from the thread of the possible to the impossible, to the utopian, that at any moment can turn to the depths of a torturous shadow. Did I mention that Brandon Tina was beaten, raped, and murdered? I'm not sure I said that. Anyways, at the same time, I want to try to maintain a thin connective tissue to a narrative, to the object at hand, so I don't lose myself in a lack of gravity, fear, or some trumped up charges listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. But the question is, how loose can the connective tissue be and still maintain a sense of cohesion? Does it need to even be a narrative? Could it be lists, phone numbers, or instructions on the impossible? I don't know how many panels I've been on speaking on gender, linguistics, and performativity, and how everyone cross-dresses no matter what, and so on and so forth. And after every other queer on the panel has told their coming out story, complete with details about their urinate tract and what brand of makeup they use, someone turns to me, so what's your story? I always wonder if they want me to lie or for me to sit here for the next 45 years and tell my story. I think this kind of what's your line narrative is either a Foucauldian confession centering on a narcissistic rendezvous with one's kinship or a reiteration of some mythic telemarketing scheme trying to perpetuate the social contract. Then maybe the other type of narrative, the big grand master narrative. I'm not sure. They both seem so similar to me and reinforce each other's schema. If I say homosexual, does that not reinforce heterosexual? Did I tell you that gender is surgically enforced on infants? I'm not sure I told you that. Thank you. Okay. Next up, we have Eleni Siclianos, author of nine books of poetry and a new book in the works coming out from Coffee House. My, your kingdom, and most recently, Make Yourself Happy from 2017 and What I Knew 2019, and two hybrid memoirs, The Book of John and You Animal Machine, The Golden Greek. That came out in 2014. Her work has been translated into a dozen languages. She frequently collaborates with musicians, filmmakers, and visual artists. Siclianos has taught poetry in public schools, homeless shelters, and prisons, and currently teaches at Brown University. Eleni, thank you. She's so a graduate much. of Naropa. <laughs> totally. Probably uh, would not have a degree if Naropa didn't exist. I'm so grateful to Anne and Emma, to Peter at City Lights, to Kaylin and all at Nightboat, three of my favorite places. Um, I just actually, as I was listening to Alan, which that was so great, Alan, it occurred to me that um, I've been looking through all these old um photographs as I prepare a website and um mm. I just have all these um, archival photographs mm. from the era when I this probably was about a year into my time at Europa. I first arrived in 19 I think I came and claims I arrived with a suitcase at her door in 1988 to check it. <laughs> Um, I hadn't seen her since I met her when I was a baby in 1965 when she was on her way to the Berkeley Poetry 
Festival made her vow to poetry. Um, this is Bobby Louise's backyard, Bobby Louise Hawkins. Um, and I'm looking admiringly, starstruck at Anne. Kimi Sugioka is here, Elliot Greenspan, there's Alan in the, in the background having a chat with Joe Ritchie. Mm. And then let's see, there's one other one that I thought might be fun to show you. I might have to reshare. Um, yeah, I just realized these are on my desktop. Naropa, I didn't even know who Frank O'Hara was. Whoa, Harry Smith. Fantastic. Can you guys see that? It's actually not, is it with me and Harry with cigarettes? Yeah. 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 Uh, we see. <laughs> this is where I met, you know, all kinds of, I had a class on uh, Shelley with Diane the Prima. I had a class on Gary Snyder with Joanne Kiger. Uh, smoke, pot, and cigarettes with Harry Smith. <laughs> Just wanted to give a little, a little taste of the home archives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we share, Peter. We had this up as our Alan's picture oh. of Harry. Oh, that's so great. Cool. Secret hero. Yeah, absolutely. So such an amazing time, and I'm so grateful for the continuing um, temporary autonomous zone, <laughs> especially in the kind of ongoing colonial capital state of even poetry. Thank you for getting to I'm going to read um, just a bit from this uh, panel talk from 2012. Um, the, the title was Archival Poetics and the War on Memory. I had just come back from Cambodia and Vietnam. And then I'm going to read from Peter Warshall's, the, the wonderful Peter Warshall's essay. So I'm going to read towards the end of this. Um, and oh something about forgetting. Uh, I'm talking about the micro and the macro archives on the edge of forgetfulness is what it's called. And I was probably working on one of my family histories, one of, one of which came out in City Lights. What interests me particularly is the infection, the mutual infestation between the lyric and the document, the imagination and the artifact. Poem is a fact wherever it lies. We are walking archives of all the nutrients and chemicals we've ever consumed, stories we've been told or lived. The river bottom is an archive. Lorene Niedecker, who worked in the geological archive so often in natural sedimentation, says this Along the river, wild sunflowers. Over my head, the dead, who gave me life, give me this. Our the air, floods, our rich friend, silt. First of all, our relative, the air, should knock us out of our chairs with its beauty. We might make a case for our relatives, the whales, the shrews, the salamanders, the plants. We usually forget about the air as our relation but Niedecker didn't. And thus, she reminds me that working in the archive is also a way to rekindle relation, to put back into context anew, not the official context, but to see and feel for oneself what the context might be. 
I am a remnant of my ancestors living among the residues of biological and geological and epistemological and political history, a remnant that bears witness to the remnants. And then a bit from this beautiful, beautiful essay by Peter Warshall, who was a naturalist friend to the poets. Um, it's just this incredible essay about um, the biophilia of color, the way that we've come up with all these other organisms in the same sort of color baths and color perceptions. Um, and so this is just kind of, from, it, you could pick this up at any moment and be amazed. I want to show you that art had a purpose on the planet. That purpose was to create a bodily shelter. Art became a shelter for animals and it became a seeking tool, a way that you could disguise, disguise yourself. A lot of the aesthetics of the bodies of animals is creating this sense of how to break up volume, how to break up an edge, a dark shadow, what the Italians would call tenebroso is the kind of thing that would make any lizard walking along a wall be given away to a predator. So what does the lizard do? It creates flaps to cover up its cast shadow. Well, artists are trying to enhance that image by creating a tenebroso shadow. Nature is trying to disguise it. Another way to get rid of an edge is to disrupt a pattern, like breaking up clear linear patterns with triangles on top of leaves and the snake disappears. Things get even more complex when you add color. If you surround the same color blue with different other colors, the intensity of blue changes. Naturalists have not looked at this in nature. Artists have done a better job. That's part of the dialogue with eco-poetics to see the different colors and ask, does this mean anything to other creatures like it means to us when we do painting? <laughs> um, the first animals could just see light sources. They could see intensity and direction of light and direction of light source, the sun. Then they started to move around and they shaped themselves to the photon flux so they could move to the photon flux, to the sun, or to the shade, so they could navigate. Navigation was one of the earliest things on the planet. The next stage was the development of a visual eye with the ability to contrast and get degrees of shadow, degrees of grayness. Finally, add color to that, all insects can see color, and you get a better sense of contours in birds, mammals, creatures like octopi. But always, the eye is only a certain number of cells. At some point, what art is about is playing with the edge of our perception. You can almost look at art as an exploration of trying to get closer and closer to the limits of the eye until it kind of, it kind of screws the eye over. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lani. That was really beautiful. Um, it's also so interesting to hear the pieces that both you and Alan chose and how you're putting your own pieces in conversation with another piece in the anthology also kind of this echo of conversation and dialogue. It's really, so thank you both. Um, and on to the next conversation. Um, our next contributor is Cedar Saigo, poet essayist raised on the Suquamish Reservation in the Pacific Northwest. 
He is the author of eight books and pamphlets of poetry, including Expansive Magic, Stranger in Town, Language Arts, and Royals, and two selections of two editions of selected writings. Um, he came to Naropa as a student who's just telling us he was 17 when he um, sent in his documents to apply to Naropa um, for the BA. And he came there and sort of picked up and carried the lineage and has become a very integral part of the community there. Um, his piece is in the anthology is titled Reality is No Obstacle, A Poetics of Participation. So thank you, Cedar, for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I just want to say thanks to City Lights and uh, to Nightboat and to Naropa and to all the poets here tonight. I was at Naropa from 96 to 99. I actually got to hear a Lenny lecture. I heard Peter Warshall, Ann Waldman, um, Joanne Kiger, and Diane DePrima, among many other luminaries. And I actually wanted to start with a little um, quote from an early um, collection of Naropa transcription titled Talking Poetics from the Naropa Institute. And this was published in 76. This is just one of two volumes. And there have been so many invaluable books of Naropa transcription since, since this one and since New Weathers. I must have at least six. And I'm so excited to finally be in one. I kind of can't believe it. Um, but I wanted to start by letting Diane sort of speak for herself. Um, so I'm going to read just the very end. It's sort of the Q&A. It's at the end of this long lecture and long Q&A. And she says, I have one little thought I want to throw in, and then we can stop. And that's that we're all sitting or meditating or studying or whatevering in one form or another. This thing I was saying about the progression of European thought, the working out of a problem, whatever, paganism, Gnosticism, alchemy, and then what? Where do we go? Way-seeking mind. Quote, that which is creative must create itself. I want to say that the old religion and the old forms that we're all studying with such total devoutness, Eastern and Western, they have a lot of information and they have a lot of the means, but where we're all going, they haven't mapped yet. We're mapping it now, or it's mapping us. If Buddha really had done it, we wouldn't be here. So I just love that, her putting it into our hands. Where are we going to take all of this? Where are we going to take all of this? You know. Um, so I will just read a little from the end of my lecture, um, which, yeah, I did kind of write it to sort of point out not only that uh, Diane DePrima and Audre Lorde published one another, they're really lifelong friends. Um, they first met at Hunter High School in New York. I think I leave that fact out. Um, but I do mention that she also helped to uh, deliver uh, Diane de Prima's daughter, Tara Marlowe. Uh, I think that was 1967. Okay, I'm gonna start with Audre Lorde's voice. Um, and this is Audre Lorde speaking about a litany for survival, that famous poem in which she says, so it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. And uh, this quote about making that poem is taken from an essay titled, My Words Will Be There, first published in 1983. I went through a period when I felt like I was dying. It was during 1975. I wasn't writing any poetry and I felt that if I couldn't write it, I would split. 
I was recording these things in my journal, but no poems came. I know now that this period was a transition in my life and I wasn't dealing with it. Later the next year, I went back to my journal and there were these incredible poems that I could almost lift out of the journal. Many of them are in the black unicorn. Harriet is one of them and Sequele is another. A litany for survival is another. These poems were right out of the journal, but I didn't see them as poems prior to that. I write this stuff in my journals and sometimes I can't even read my journals because there is so much pain, rage in them. I'll put them away in a drawer and six months, a year or so later, I'll pick up the journal and there will be poems. The journal entries somehow have to be assimilated into my living and only then can I deal with what I have written down. It did not surprise me to learn that this classic poem almost went unrecognized. When we write poetry, we sometimes have to lock it away at the ending stages, almost with the intention of letting it dry like glue or a piece of pottery. It's a recognition that art might have to catch up with our experience of everyday reality. The poet is so far out in front, but doesn't quite realize it until later. Audre Lorde and Diane DePrimo would continue to work and read together until Lorde's death from liver cancer in 1992. Lorde would publish DePrimo's work as poetry editor of the feminist magazine Chrysalis in 1980. DePrimo would publish an additional collection of Lorde's poetry titled Between Ourselves in 1976 on her new imprint, Eidolon Editions. These poems would later be incorporated into The Black Unicorn. The cover for Between Ourselves is a drawing by Lord of a symbol she had discovered in Ghana, depicting two crocodiles whose trunks intersected. De Prima remembers Lord being very particular as to the color of this image. Audrey said she wanted an all brown book, De Prima remembered. Here is the opening stanza of the title poem, Between Ourselves. Once when I walked into a room, my eyes would seek out the one or two black faces for contact or reassurance or a sign I was not alone. Now walking into rooms full of black faces that would destroy me for any difference, where shall my eyes look? Once it was easy to know who were my people. Lord herself would start Kitchen Table Woman of Color Press in 1980. This was a press collective founded and operated by lesbians of color, including Barbara Smith, Cherry Moraga, Hattie Gossett, Leona Lone Dog, and others. Lord's essays, Apartheid USA, and I Am Your Sister, later included in A Burst of Light, were first published as kitchen table press pamphlets. I did want to speak more pointedly about the list, the chant, as repetition is a common formal element in much of the poetry I have read tonight. The fantasy of a truly bindering tracery of light. The poet Joy Harjo writes beautifully of both its influence and its effect. Incantation and chant call something into being. They make a ceremonial field of meaning. Much of world poetry is incantation and chant. The poem that first made me truly want to become a poet was sung and performed by a healer in Southeast Asia. He appeared in a documentary I found on television. As he sang and performed the poem, he became what he was singing slash speaking. And even as he sang and spoke, his words healed his client. Both revolutionary letters and a litany for survival are good examples of a poet becoming what she is slash singing and speaking. 
We write the world we want to live in, calling it into being, and then make that dispersal available as a book, a recording, a form to step right into. The list can become a deceptively simple entrance. If you think up a good title, a filter in advance, you can coax your imagination word by word or action by action, as in a play. Reading a list poem aloud can sometimes help to negotiate the bare bones of narrative. It clings to and flatters those rhythms that tumble out easily. The reader is allowed to climb back down from the apex and the path is always kept clear. This refining through repetition reminds me of another quote I have been carrying around recently. In an interview, Joy Harjo was asked what she felt was possible at this point in terms of reclamation through native poetry. Harjo remarked that her intention is, quote, not to reverse history, but to draw out the strength. This is the continuous transformative duty of the poet to find the poetic means by which we can draw out further strength. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you so much. That's great. Peter, do we have a couple of minutes uh, to close and then oh, yeah, absolutely. Q &A and have a few Q&A? Yeah, um, you know, oh, just I, another... I haven't really posted anything yet, but I would like okay. to encourage everyone, you know, please, okay. now is the time. If you have any comments, any praise, any of your own experiences at Naropa, I'm sure there's some uh, alums in the audience. Uh, so, yeah, now is the time. But, but Anne, please do. Yeah, we, they, I just uh, wanted to read. Yeah. This was from a conversation. It's the piece that ends the book a conversation with uh, I'm having with Cecilia Vicuña. And it was, I think, one of the pieces that we, it was from our Carrier Waves summers. So we were already on Zoom doing classes on Zoom. So this was, I think, uh, one of the Zoom uh, talks with Cecilia. But I'm saying, let's see, I say, we're not experiencing the full picture, the out of touch with our cycle, our life, the day-to-day -day night cycles. And it's said that the so-called Kali Yuga, which from some point of view we are already in, is very speeded up. This is the dark time. It's one of the qualities of the difficult times, the troubled times, the dark ages, is that everything is very, very accelerated. And even the predictions for when this world come are sooner than we might expect. This would come are sooner than we might expect. According to some of the Buddhist and Hindu teachers, it's happening quickly. It's happening more quickly in our planet you feel this all the time in the way things are coming on, you know, on top of each other now. Why don't you read Cecilia? So Cecilia's answer is yes. Perhaps something so simple that looks really idiotic and silly, like stopping, is really a practice that we can do at any time. I remember when I first arrived in New York, I came to give a performance in 1980 and I ended up being caught by New York and then still here 40 years later. And it still feels like an accident to me, but I remember that one of the things that I did as a practice is to be walking down the street on Fifth Avenue, whatever place full of skyscrapers. I mean, complete madness in every possible sense. And I would stop to one of those. Usually my favorite spot is where the garbage is, those garbage baskets, the metal baskets that they have in New York. And it seemed like an appropriate place for me because I was sort of protected from people walking on top of me being small, you know. So it's like I'm a little animal right there standing next to the garbage can and I could suddenly completely stop being in order to be. And I could go into a complete trance state, feeling the immense beauty of all that madness, all that passing, you know. And then she goes on. And I think artists and poets are among perhaps the few people on this planet that have not been reduced yet 
because our art and poetry would not be possible if we didn't have the ability to enter into that trance state, into that state of grace, which is really what the writing is. It doesn't mean that is, how do you call it, a sort of nirvana state, not at all. It can be the hardest, most painful thing as well as the most joyous, but it's not about that. It is not like the Buddhists say this or that. It is something else, something more beautiful than this or that, because it is whole. It is undifferentiated sensing of differences. I'm writing down what I said, not to forget it, because I said it. And after I said it, I realized that I was speaking to you, something that I didn't know was the central poetics of the land where I was born. And I didn't know it rationally or intellectually because it was suppressed, submerged, like all indigenous knowledge around the world has been consistently suppressed and submerged by the colonialisms. But when I came across the naming of this knowledge system, I immediately recognized it and so on. So she, um, at the very end, it's somewhere where Emma is saying, um, actually, I think Eleni Eleni asking if Celia and Anne could speak about joy. And then I say, joy, yes, it's so joyous to see you even in your activated Zoom shrine boxes. I'm feeling joy. I was panicked about the earthquake in Mexico, all the earthquakes, and also thinking of all the people I've been with recently, thinking of the students we work with in the little village, Tlahuitoltepec, outside of Oaxaca this last fall, the music school, the SACOM, it's so powerful, and the joy of that, the immediate joy, whatever we're facing, but how to face these things with joy, Cecilia, will you tell us? And she says, I think that this sense of joy, I can speak. I will go back to the first page of this book because it speaks. It says getting down through the slit. And it's very important that in terms of joy, both men and women are endowed with the ability to experience total joy. But women have a sort of joy organ, which is the clitoris. And so we have a few poets and artists, women that throughout the millennia have devoted themselves to the world provided by the clit. And I recently recently did at the Serpentine Gallery in London a performance where I converted the entire crowd into a collective clit, it was really absolutely delightful. But here, getting back to the joy, what is absolutely magnificent about joy is that whether it is physical or non-physical, and a neuroscientist I'm sure would be able to have a beautiful answer for that, it touches a certain dimension of our being like an explosion that breaks open all boundaries. So if we are removed from this ability to experience joy, how on earth are we going to be human again? How are we going to be able to release whatever it is that we haven't yet released? Because that's what we have to do in order to get to the other side where we collectively decide why this destruction, why are we burning all the forests? Why can't we stop? (laughs) Thank you all so much. So we're here for questions, if there's anything. Yeah, maybe Peter, you can come back and help us field the... Q&A. Alan talking about telling one's own history, like Amiri's quote, don't let this stuff get buried about that which is creative, create itself, unquote. Well, I mean, when I got to Naropa, I'd been working at St. Mark's, making sure we, you know, and Paul Blackburn had started that, make sure we, you know, got all those things on, all those readings on tape. We started with very, you know, inexpensive tapes and so on. Uh, That stuff is being preserved in the Library of Congress. Those, um, especially all those early tapes from the Poetry Project, very important work. And so, you know, we we took that practice with us. It just became, you know, you turn on that button. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money for sophisticated equipment. Sometimes we had, you know, unexperienced people, 
turning on the buttons, turning them <laughs> off. So, you know, there was always that danger of some things got getting lost and there things have gotten lost. Also, sometimes uh, tapes would disappear, probably some secret place in the interstices of uh, poetry heaven, who knows, that often happened at the Poetry Project, so we were prepared for that. So um, I think it is just pushing the button, and also, I mean, with your own mind, think, you know, thinking about how you think, how you work, how you organize uh, your own work, and your creative work, and then what you're most curious about, what you think is essential to know, what would you want to pass on, and you start those kinds of lists and those kinds of inventories. And just as you would treat your, you know, hopefully your own, you know, work, taking it seriously, um, being, you know, looking at the different iterations, the different drafts and that sort of thing in that way and building a kind of, um, you know, body of the, the oral. In this case, we're working primarily orally with the Kerouac schools of archive and, and vi visually, and then also um, how you then transcribe. It's still important to me that, you know, the idea of the text and reading. I think it's a that's part of the discipline to continue to read as I don't know if it's true that less and less people are reading. That's what they say. But that kind of very simple. And Emma, I think my scholar, my experience with uh, putting this book together and with archival practice has just been a real appreciation of how difficult it is to preserve material. And, you know, things are still getting lost when they're digitally recorded or it's just so it's impossible. But we've also in the process of putting this book together, we had um, different students, different uh, fellows at Naropa that were transcribing the audio and helping us. And in some cases, we sent them off to a company that did transcription services, but those came back and were really terrible and you still had to go through it. Um, so there isn't a great system to do this yet. And I think these technologies are probably changing and have been in the past few years and improving, but it's still just such a difficult thing of how do you preserve something and something that is so important and how can you give it sort of these digital afterlives and what's the best format of doing that and you know this book now takes on a life of its own but it also is only a very small little sliver of what is an immense um, body of work that is just such an overwhelming task to try to uh, preserve. We had a Harry Smith um, to bring him back into the conversation uh, piece that was, you know, fragmentary. He often would drift off. Uh, Stephen Taylor did a remarkable job putting that together. And, and Peter Wilson, Peter Lamborn Wilson, had also done a kind of version, making it look more like a poem. Yeah. We kind of went with Stephen's, and Stephen also did oh. some notation. And, um, but it was interesting. I listened to it. I worked with the, you know, the fragmentary text wondering, was the, is this enough? Was, would, could this be the text in the book? Would that suffice? To, and it needed some of the backstory of Harry, who Stephen, well, we knew uh, Harry pretty well, and he lived on our campus. Uh, <laughs> a guest of the, the Grateful Dead gave a scholarship to help Harry to continue to live on the, in, in one of the little cottages on the property, he was our shaman in residence, our cosmologist in residence. But in any case, so there were decisions about how to present that, how to do that, how to make it archivally true, keep the authenticity, but we, you know, we're not Harry, 
And, uh, you know, I kept seeing his body. I mean, every time I'd look at the text, I would see his body and his gesture <laughs> and the way he would, he could, you know, wander off, just break, you know, things would be broken in his line of thought or in his line of speech. So it's powerful to me. It feels like a, a kind of um, architecture and a simulacrum of a, a human body in, uh, you know, an amazing sort of uh, consciousness that Harry had. And, and with him also, you felt he was receiving things simultaneously, that there were, there were always simultaneous things kind of going on. And he was, you know, in his time at Naropa, he would be recording the energy of the squirrels uh, <laughs> out the window, you know, the pat squirrel patterns. And he once came to a talk of mine and I thought he was just recording. And he said, well, I noticed there were more men uh, sneezing on the right side than the left. And, more, and, you know, he just had a very different way of reading the universe. A question for Alan from JW. Uh, they were interested in the quote by Carrie Edwards. Um, he thinks it was narcissist, narcissistic wandering or wandering through one's kinship. Could you please explain that? A narcissistic rendezvous with one's kinship. Um, I mean, I, I assume the point here, uh, in keeping with the, the whole piece and the anti-narrative quality of the piece, is, is a kind of anti-essentialist, fluid approach to form to identity uh to gender to genre um so that's kind of how i make sense of that particular phrase and kind of the piece as a whole here yeah i see that question about um gregory basin thank you alan that's that's good i'm so happy to bring carrie into carrie was a student in both the creative writing program and also in um psychology and was a practicing Buddhist and, you know, very amazing person and poet and thinker. But anyway, I see the question about Gregory, memories of Gregory Bateson. He was so key to the early vision for the school. And we were able to have a sort of weekends that were where people would stay. And, I mean, it was a model for our future academy where you could live together and share a space. And we had rented some of these, um, Frat houses. <laughs> you maybe you remember those, Alan. I do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a whole story. I'd love to hear. So the frat houses, and we had Gregory was, you know, in charge of this um, investigation of uh, the bicameral mind, essentially. But it was, you know, I thought of he he was presenting that model, and I thought this is a real a direction. For us and I think it was adapted in in various ways and he was also bringing you know the scholarship of the, the earlier times with you know Margaret Mead and anthropology into the conversation sort of extending the parameters I think you know it was very important that we were able to develop programs for a while in Nepal and in Indonesia and later in um, Bhutan through some of that uh anthropology and you know kind of I you know I think of it as a um spiritual work that he did so thanks for asking about him Adolf are there any alumni in the audience Let's see if we can get anyone to kind of pop in and say a few words tell us what years you were there anybody out there 
I'd have to see the list. Let's see. Huh. Well, it's not too late to come to Naropa. It's intergenerational. <laughs> and we have, oh, here we go. Aubrey King, 2021. Oh, wow. Great. Um, hey, Aubrey. Alistair, uh, 95. Oh, great. Alistair, yay. Alistair, hi. Tell us, tell us. Drew, 2019. Jens. We're calling you out. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Well, I have to say, um, this has been such a heartening evening and, and so many connections and so many threads that that tie us all together. And Eleni, thank you for sharing those photos. I mean, it really yeah. gave it, you know, an additional dimension. And and Cedar, thank you for invoking Diane's daughter Tara. I actually grew up around her and her brother Alex. And and she recently sent me a photo uh -huh. of her walking on campus. And she is holding arm in arm. She's got Norman Mailer on one side and Alan on the other. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, that was I'll just send you that summer. photo. Um, so that was especially meaningful. Alan, thank you for invoking Carrie Edwards. That that actually means a lot. Um, and Emma, I mean, congratulations. Such a wonderful book. Also really want to extend our gratitude to Nightboat. I mean, you know, they know how to do it right. And uh, they're just publishing some wonderful, wonderful stuff. So thank you all. Also want to thank you all in the audience tonight. Really, you help complete the circle as always. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So Take care, everyone. Hope to see you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.